Welcome to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's Election Day in Chicago and the suburbs. It's a good time to think about ways we can make our democracy stronger. Today we'll discuss how democracy can be reformed on global and local levels. Aziz Haq and Tom Ginsburg are both professors of law at the University of Chicago. I talked with them about their new book last year. It's called How to Save a Constitutional Democracy. And I started by asking Tom Ginsburg about how to spot trends in a democratic process. I see some good signs, but I also see some bad signs. And certainly Michigan and Wisconsin, of a party that had lost power, seeking to lock itself in before leaving office by changing the rules of the game, that's a pretty severe sign. In our assessment of countries around the world, we saw that happened um, in Venezuela when Hugo Chavez had lost an election. Now we're seeing that same tactic here in the United States. We're seeing attacks on the public sphere that look very similar to those things that go on in Europe, in uh, countries which have backslid. So there's a lot of evidence that things are getting pretty bad pretty quickly. One of the things that you talk about in the book is different ways that democracies degrade. And usually, I think most people probably think they degrade fast. Somebody comes into power or there's a coup or something and democracy is torn up. A a populace comes in and just runs roughshod. But in, in your assessment, you talk a lot about how it's really not usually like that. It's, it's usually a different story where, where institutions are degraded over time. Um, Aziz? That, that's right. Until about the mid-1970s, uh, the way that democracies failed around the globe was through coups or through the abuse of emergency powers. And the most famous example of this is the end of the Weimar regime in Germany in the 1930s. But since the 1970s, we've seen a move away from coups and emergency rule toward more subtle forms of democratic backsliding. What now appears to be the most common form of democratic failure around the world is not the abrogation of elections by force, but rather the use of legal and constitutional tools to rot away the quality of democracy from within. And one of the reasons why this has become a powerful mode of anti-democratic action is that unlike a coup, unlike the use of emergency powers, the anti-democratic leader or faction can always say that they are acting consistent with the law and the constitution, even as they use the law and the constitution to piece by piece unpack the foundations upon which a democracy relies. And Tom, it seems like the poster child for this is Hungary right now, but uh, it's spread around in Poland. There's lots of other countries who are doing similar things. Um, Would you want to expand on that a little bit with some examples? Sure. Uh, So Hungary is a great example. And I should add that both Hungary and Poland are really interesting because they're led by lawyers (laughs) uh, who are very systematic, actually, about how they're going about doing things. It's not as if there's a single series of events that happens in sequence in undermining democracy. We identify five different dimensions on which you can sort of observe the dismantling. And what we've seen in Hungary and in Poland in different orders is a series of systematic efforts to undermine 
elements of a democracy. So an example in Hungary is that they initially just took over the courts, fired the constitutional court, uh, passed a new constitution that allowed them to void all the earlier jurisprudence of a very liberal court, manipulate the electoral rules so they're likely to stay in power. And recently, we've now seen them consolidate control over the media. Virtually the entire Hungarian media is um, connected to Orban and his own private companies. He's also making a lot of money in the process. You talk in the book uh, about the things that kind of operate outside the law that are important and that constitutions can't fix. Um, is there a limit to what a constitution can do to um, to preserve a democracy? So any good functioning democracy depends not just on laws, but on norms, upon uh, certain kinds of attitudes and behaviors on the part of important political actors. And this is so because it's very hard for anyone sitting down and writing a constitution, no matter how insightful, no matter how much a genius, to anticipate all of the different kinds of problems that can arise uh, when people are given power and, and allowed to uh, create new institutions of governments with that power. So for example, in the United States, there's no rule about the president directing federal prosecutions uh, in respect to his or her political enemies. And the way that the politicization of criminal prosecutions has been prevented at the federal level is through norms and understandings. It was a uh, uh, a written but but not enforceable rule, a norm uh, under the Bush and Obama administrations that White House staff were not supposed to make either implicit or explicit requests with respect to particular ongoing criminal prosecutions. And even today, we, we don't need to go very far back in time, we see the president uh, seeking to change the course of a particular criminal proceeding. In this case, it's Michael Flynn's sentencing. Right? That would have been inconceivable a few years ago because of a norm. Uh, Tom, do you want to weigh in on some of the non-constitutional protections that um, you underline are important in the book? Yeah, it's important to uh, understand exactly what institutions can and cannot do. And I guess, you know, our bottom line is that institutions are n never foolproof. Um, and in particular, as Aziz just said, you know, they're always surrounded by these understandings and norms and such. All that said, uh, we also, you know, make a claim that institutions are important, constitutions are important. They can slow down processes of erosion and, um, you know, at the margin can really make all the difference. And so so we think that, you know, this is one reason that we decided to write the book as lawyers. Not only is law really important in the backsliding projects, but we also think it's going to be important uh, uh, in in defending it. And so so constitutions aren't completely useless either. <laughs> if you were to des design a country and a constitution right now, would it look anything like the constitution that we've got now in this country, Aziz? Almost certainly not. There's almost no way for the United States to get to a new constitution, given uh, the way that amendment works under our system. Under 
Article 5 of the Constitution, uh, you need a, a supermajority of, of states uh, to agree to a new constitutional convention. Now, there is a movement to have such a convention, but... Led by ALEC and a lot of by, people, uh, yeah, libertarians who want a balanced budget. Jonesing for the balanced budget, right. Um, I, it's very hard to see given our current state of uh, polarization, how a new convention could lead to anything good, right? I I think it could uh, open the floodgates to more violent and degrading public discourse of a kind that I think would be bemoaned by everybody. Um, But if if we were looking for better models, uh, there are plenty of alternative approaches to entrenching democracy around the world. For example, South Africa in the 1990s adopted a constitution with a bunch of innovations that entrenched election administration, prosecutorial powers, and courts beyond political interference in ways that, although they haven't proved perfect, have actually worked reasonably well. So if we look overseas, there, there absolutely are models, even if they're, they're probably out of reach for, for us here. I'm talking with Tom Ginsburg and Aziz Haq about their book, How to Save a Constitutional Democracy. Um, Tom, do you have some thoughts on the perfect model? Yeah, I mean, again, obviously, there's no perfect model that's universal. But in thinking about this challenge of backsliding, you know, there's some principles. Um, the Constitution of South Africa, which, as he's just mentioned, is one of many now uh, that constitutionalize the accountability machinery, which in our case is not very well protected. So I think that's a that's a general principle in terms of the generic design stuff. Um, one of the things we talk a lot about is the importance of the opposition in democratic politics and the importance of constitutions that actually recognize that formally. So in many countries, you'll have an official leader of the opposition and you'll even have some um, rights of opposition parties to head particular committees to govern uh, and to um, to help play a role in accountability. And that's something I think is really important. In our politics today, we just see the demonization of the other side completely without recognizing that there is, in fact, a role in any functioning democracy for more than one party. To move on to ways that we could tinker with the United States and make it better, do we just have too high a threshold to change the Constitution right now? Is there any way we can tinker with just that little part of it? It's very hard to change pieces of the Constitution like our amendment rule. And a more promising avenue of reform is things akin to the national popular vote movement, right? Finding ways to work around our very rigid constitution and promote a more inclusive uh, form of democracy. Yeah, I have uh, some thoughts on it. I think the first thing is we need a politics of democracy, a politics that defend democratic institutions. One way of thinking about what is happening in Wisconsin and and Michigan and happened in uh, North Carolina is that uh, the Republicans in those three states decided to play hardball, decided to do things that would entrench their power beyond the ability of mere voters to change. The way you break out of the cycle of hateful, uh, polarizing uh, political competition is by broadening the circle of democratic inclusion. Another suggestion you guys have in the book is direct application of international human rights treaties and regional institutions being more involved 
Uh, the United States has a kind of an anti-anybody else except our great constitution theory about things. Um, Tom, do you have some thoughts on how, to, how the other countries are integrating these things? Right. So in some countries, uh, international human rights institutions can be utilized to uh, prevent backsliding or to slow things down. You know, in general, these institutions aren't as effective as they could be. And we're actually seeing in some countries the perversion of the international human rights norms. So Evo Morales, the president of Bolivia, and Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua both got their Supreme Courts to declare the term limits in their own constitutions to be unconstitutional or illegal in violation of human rights norms because they said, oh, you know, I have a, I have a direct human right under international law to run for office and that's interfered with by term limits. Um, and, uh, you know, this was they did this because they weren't able to get their own allies to even go along with them in their own power grab. So we see, as with everything else, it can be a two-edged sword, but um, the idea of an external actor having some involvement, I think, can be really important just to make sure that there are eyes on what is going on. Another suggestion you have that is an interesting one is getting multiple ratification of important issues. Uh, we see the British all in a knot over Brexit. Um, the Scandinavian countries apparently have uh, procedures where if you want to do something major, you've got to get a parliament, you've got to get a ratification, you've got to get another parliament to ratify it. Sounds like a pretty good idea, Aziz. That's right. A number of Scandinavian countries have a two-step constitutional amendment process. Uh, a parliament or a legislature proposes and passes an amendment, an election happens, and uh, the new parliament, right, which is elected in the shadow of this constitutional amendment proposal, has to once again sign off on the uh, amendment. That means that there is a prolonged debate, not just among political elites, but among the broader democratic public about whether a change happens. And this kind of, of, of slowing down and uh, cooling off of political debate, we think, has produced a better kind of constitutional development than what you see either in the United States, where constitutional amendments are very rare, or in other countries where constitutional amendments are dime a dozen. Tom, do you have some thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's a it is a really nice uh, system. Now, one one of the virtues is that you know a lot of constitutional amendments in a lot of countries are just routine or technical. So most of the time, the public wouldn't really pay much attention. But if there's a you know a power grab, then people can mobilize around the amendment. We like that a lot better than referenda. In a lot of countries, um, there's been a shift towards direct democracy, returning power to the people, and adoption of policies by referenda and such. And referenda, although they sound good on paper can often be manipulated. Of course, many American states, uh, California being the maybe most well-known example, have a lot of referenda, a lot of initiatives, and it's often very confusing for the public what those things are calling for. So, you know, we believe in Republican institutions in, in the small R sense of uh, uh, Republican form of democracy, but the point is that you have to give some check on that to make sure that it doesn't, uh, doesn't lead to a power grab. Any last suggestions for the United States as it uh, goes about its business here? One of the, the really important failures of the original Constitution 
comes in Article 1, Section 4, which I'm sure everyone has at their their fingertips. <laughs> uh, but that's the clause of the Constitution that left it to the states to set their own uh, voting rules and to run their own elections. And, and it's turned out that this is a, a colossal mistake because states have done this in uh, in ways that are of, of wildly varying quality. Yeah, yes, they have. Uh, that was a euphemism. And uh, in, in, if one looks around the world, that the, the, there is broad agreement and commitment on the idea that you don't just need uniform election administration, but you need uniformly high election administration. And indeed, in, in some countries where anti-democratic leaders have, have tried to push the envelope, uh, it's been uh, these neutral, independent, national-level election administrators that have stood in their way. Sri Lanka is a good example of that. So administering our elections better would be a, a big first step. Tom, do you have a last shot? Well, I'd agree with that. I think the phenomenon of partisan secretaries of state running in elections and then counting their own votes is something we would find completely laughable if it hadn't just occurred twice in our own uh, in our own country. So fixing the elections um, and, you know, advancing a politics of democracy, I think, are what may save us in the end. That's University of Chicago law professor Tom Ginsburg, whose book with Aziz Haq is How to Save a Constitutional Democracy. Coming up after the break, we'll talk more about an idea that Aziz mentioned to save democracy, the National Popular Vote Initiative. It would help fix the uh, Electoral College. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Election Day focuses the mind on democracy. Democracy where the candidate with the most votes wins. Unless, of course, the election is for president. The easiest way to rectify the problem with our electoral college is probably the National Popular Vote Initiative, where states pledge to commit their electoral votes to whoever wins the popular vote nationwide. And John Koza is the man who thought this thing up. He is a computer scientist. He taught at Stanford and is the originator of the National Popular Vote Initiative legislation. Thanks a lot for joining us. Well, thank you, Jerome. Uh, this is something you have thought about the Electoral College for a long time. I understand you initially uh, started had a board game involving Electoral College strategy in 1966. Uh, yes, that's correct. Well, I was a graduate student. Uh, uh, I published a very complicated, commercially unsuccessful uh, <laughs> board game involving the complex machinations of the Electoral College, uh, and I've been interested in the topic ever since then. Well, we all have to some degree, but none of us um, thought about this strategy of that you developed, the National Popular Vote Initiative, where states end up committing their votes to some, whoever won the popular vote. How did you think that up? Well, uh, over the years, I, I kept noticing how few states mattered in the selection of the president because under the current system, under the winner-take-all rule, uh, 
a presidential candidate gets all of a state's electoral votes uh, if he gets the most votes inside each state. And because of these state winner-take-all laws, uh, five of our 45 presidents have come into office without winning the most votes nationwide. Uh, the other problem of the current system is that because of these state winner-take-all laws, the presidential campaign is limited to just the states that are within, say, 47 to 53 percent of one way or the other. Um, and states like Illinois and 37 other states uh, just get left out of the presidential campaign because they're either heavily Democratic or heavily Republican. Yeah, it doesn't seem fair. Now, I mean, what you go when historically there is some very interesting facts about when states became winner take all. It wasn't always this way with electoral votes. Uh, you're right, uh, Jerome. Uh, uh, many people think that our method of electing the president was designed by the founding fathers and it's part of the Constitution. In fact, they couldn't agree on how to elect the president and they gave each state the power to decide how to award the state's electoral votes. So in the first presidential election in 1789, there were only three states that used uh, this winner-take-all method of electing uh, uh, presidential electors, and all three of them repealed it by 1800. So there was a variety of other methods being used in the early years. And then before, at some point before the Civil War, the uh, states uh, migrated to the winner-take-all system. But the system we have today is not in the Constitution. It was never debated at the Constitutional Convention. Uh, it's not in the Federalist Papers. And the Founding Fathers were long dead before uh, our current system um, became predominant. And there are a couple states that do not have winner-take-all. It's Maine and somewhere else. Yes, you're right, Jerome. Uh, Maine and Nebraska. And that's just a demonstration that the states have the power to decide how to award their electoral votes and that they are not obligated by the Constitution or anything else to give all of their electors to the uh, presidential candidate who gets the most votes inside the state. I'm talking with John Coza. He's the originator of the National Popular Vote Initiative legislation. That's where states pledge to commit their electoral votes to whoever wins the popular vote nationwide in a presidential election. Now, when did you begin to think, I could con states into this? When did you, was there a moment that it became a reality? Well, uh, in the 2004 election, there was a question on the ballot in uh, Colorado uh, proposing a, a, a different system, a, a proportional division of electoral votes. And it turns out it was written by uh, the same attorney that uh, I used to work with when I was in the lottery business uh, in the 1980s. And we got to talking. Uh, and, and to be the, clear, you are the man who developed the scratch-off lottery ticket. Uh, that's correct, yes. So uh, in the 80s, uh, we were, uh, Barry Fadiman and I, uh, the lawyer worked on initiatives uh, in uh, Arizona and California and Oregon and other states to, to establish state lotteries. In any case, uh, the proposal in Colorado was not a good idea, and the voters rejected it. But it got us to thinking about the fact that uh, we could go to a national popular vote by passing state laws one by one 
and change the system from winner take all to something different and better uh, by going through the state legislatures. What was the first state to take you up on this? Well, the very first legislative chamber that passed the bill was in the spring of 2006. It was the Colorado Senate. And by the way, the Colorado governor just signed the bill finally after all these years uh, uh, a few weeks ago. And then the first state to actually enact it, House, Senate and governor, was Maryland in 2007. And then each year we've picked up uh, one or two states. Uh, This year uh, we're doing a little better uh, we believe the New Mexico governor will sign the bill uh, within a week. So the number of states that have enacted it are Rhode Island, Vermont, Hawaii, Connecticut, uh, Maryland, Massachusetts, Washington, New Jersey, New York, Illinois, this state, uh, California, the District of Columbia, and uh, you mentioned New Mexico is about to to chime in, it sounds like. And that gets you up to, what, 181 electoral votes with all those states put together? Well, if uh, uh, New Mexico signs the bill, uh, uh, then with Colorado, it'd be 189 electoral votes, uh, 15 states. We'd be 81 away from the number we need to put the bill into effect. And that's 270. So when it gets to the number that uh, you need to be president, all these initiatives kind of kick in, right? That's that's how the legislation is structured. That's right. And what our bill actually does, uh, so a voter in Delaware now only has a direct vote in picking three out of the 270 presidential electors needed to become president. Um, Under our system, a voter in Delaware would have a direct, unfiltered voice in voting for at least 270 presidential electors from all the different states that have passed our legislation. And then the presidential candidate uh, who gets the most popular votes in all 50 states would be guaranteed at least 270 electoral votes, and therefore it would be guaranteed the White House. So what our bill does is it amplifies the voice of each voter, which is currently trapped in a little silo in each state and allows every voter in every state to vote for 270 electors And if their choice for president gets the most votes in all 50 states, their choice for president will become president. Now, it sounds like the path to getting this done has to run through some red states if it's if you're going to get up to 270. Is there a way to get red states to vote for the national popular vote initiative? Well, in 2016, the Arizona House uh, passed our bill. Uh, Two-thirds of the Republicans and two-thirds of the Democrats sponsored the bill, um, and two-thirds of the Arizona Senate, in fact, sponsored the bill as well. The bill didn't get all the way through, but uh, that is an indication that uh, Republicans um, can see the uh, benefits of this kind of legislation. The Oklahoma Senate uh, passed it. Again, we didn't get it through the rest of the process in Oklahoma. And, for example, uh, when Obama was president, Uh, The Republican-controlled New York Senate uh, passed the bill twice, but we couldn't get it through the uh, Democratic-controlled assembly. And that was during a period when the Democrats were sort of mesmerized by this uh, blue wall theory that they thought uh, gave the Democratic Party uh, the upper hand and, and a lock on the White House. Of course, when the 
2016 election came along, the blue wall theory went out the window and some of the Republicans who uh, had previously supported our bill uh, got a little less interested. <laughs> but that'll change because there really is no systemic advantage to either party than anybody has ever identified. Uh, uh, so this is a really a nonpartisan proposal uh, that just makes sense. Are you worried that if it got close to, you get close to the 270 mark, the number of states that you need, that some states would reconsider and drop out of the initiative and, and drop you back? Because I know that there's an initiative to get to create a constitutional convention with state legislatures passing motions for a constitutional convention. And it get, it's getting quite close to creating one, but it seems like states drop out of that every once in a while. And do you, are you worried about that happening with your vote? Well, I'm not worried about it. It is, it is theoretically possible. The states have the right to uh, uh, decide that they don't like uh, the National Popular Vote Bill, and they can repeal it. Um, they can't repeal it in the midst of a campaign, but they can repeal it, and um, uh, that is a, a legal possibility. And if it happened, uh, it's possible that the popular National Popular Vote could be used for a few elections, and theoretically uh, something better might come along. Well, do you think that if it does get in, if you pass the National Popular Vote Initiative, um, I mean, that, that, would, that would kind of preclude doing the thing that would seem to be the smart thing to do. If you want a popular vote for president, stick it in the Constitution and make it happen. Do you get the feeling that you're kind of precluding the, the true fix to this thing? Well, I don't know if it's a true fix. The uh, winner-take-all rule is not in the Constitution uh, and it got established by being passed in state after state, uh, and then it became predominant. Uh, uh, 1880 was the first election when 100% of the states used winner-take-all, and as you already noted, uh, a couple of states have repealed winner-take-all and used something else today. Yes, there could be a constitutional amendment, but there's really no need for it because under the current Constitution, the states legislatures have the exclusive power to decide how to award their electoral votes. And uh, at the moment, uh, it's the winner-take-all method that the states uh, are, are using. But the fact is they didn't always use the winner-take-all method, and they don't have to use it in the future if they don't want to. What have you made of some of the um, unusual things that have popped up recently about this? I know that... Um, the former governor of Maine came out and, and talked about how uh, this whole thing is a ruse and that this is a way for minorities to become majorities. And to, uh, he, he says the white people won't get to uh, to decide things anymore if this if this happens. You get, you get caught up in some pretty wacky stuff here. Well, the former governor of Maine is pretty wacky, and uh, I think he's factually incorrect about uh, – what he says about white people versus uh, other minorities. Uh, the fact is, under our plan, every person's vote would be equal throughout the United States. The candidate with the most votes would win. And the last time I looked, uh, there were plenty of white people in the United States. Having thought about this for so long, do you think about our democracy 
differently. Uh, do, do you feel like there's something that's awfully undemocratic at times about our democracy? Well, that's certainly true. And um, it is true, certainly in the area of gerrymandering. And and it's manifestly true in the, in the way we elect the president. Uh, uh, I don't think there's anybody who would ever come up with such a scheme. If, if we had a direct popular election of the president today, it would be inconceivable that anybody could suggest, much less get past, uh, a system for electing the president like the one we currently have. I was talking with a Canadian philosopher at the end of our last presidential election who looks at our country and says they seem so helpless. They, they actually have tools where they could change the situation if, uh, if they want to. But people in the United States seem to say, well, you know, it's impossible to change. We can't, we can't change this uh, electoral college. It's, it's been going on too long. It's, it's too hard in, hardwired. I guess other people looking outside at us, you know, just think we're kind of crazy for doing this. Well, I don't think it's impossible to change, and neither did the uh, 15 states that have passed the national popular vote bill, uh, the legislators there and the governors. So it is possible to change the system if you have something that makes sense and and uh, present it to the uh, uh, office holders who uh, decide the issue. What's been your best argument to legislators about this? Well, everybody, of course, wants to see the uh, candidate with the most votes become president. But the really important political argument is that most of the states are ignored politically in the presidential election. Uh, In 2012, 100% of the general election campaign events were in 12 states. There were none in, in the rest of the country. In 2016, almost the same thing. 94% of the events and money were in 12 states. And looking ahead at 2020, uh, the number of states that may actually matter may be five or six, because some of the previous states that were battleground states uh, in 2012 and 16 uh, are no longer considered closely divided states. So we may have a presidential election in 2020 that revolves around, say, Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin and Florida and Arizona. Those are the five states that recently I heard David Wasserman identify uh, uh, at a conference as the states that would matter. Um, And that several of the other battleground states from previous years might not even be uh, serious places to campaign. Well, that is a pretty good argument, i got to admit. Five states is not, a, not what you want when you're uh, trying to elect a new president. Uh, well, if people want more information on the National Popular Vote Initiative, uh, where, where's the website? Um, nationalpopularvote.com. There you go. John Coza is a computer scientist. He taught at Stanford. He's the originator of the National Popular Vote Initiative legislation. Thanks a lot for joining us, and thanks for thinking this up. Well, thank you, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about efforts to end gerrymandering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. 
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's Election Day, and we're thinking about ways to make our democracy better. Gerrymandering is often pointed to as one of the more undemocratic practices in the U.S. At the end of last month, the Supreme Court heard arguments on gerrymandering cases in Maryland, where Democrats are accused of fixing a map, and North Carolina, where Republicans are accused. Kathy Fung is with us. She is National Redistricting Director for Common Cause, and she built a bipartisan coalition in California that replaced partisan districts with uh, district drawing with nonpartisan uh, nonpartisan commission. This has happened in a handful of states around the U.S. And Common Cause, where Kathy works, is a plaintiff in the Supreme Court challenge to North Carolina's congressional map. Thanks very much for joining us, Kathy Fung. Hi, Jerome. I wanted to ask about your experience in California, because um, here in Illinois and through much of the Midwest, um, you know, it has always been that the winning party draws the map. And now there are a handful of states that don't do this. How did you get there? Yeah. In a lot of ways, California is very much like Illinois in that uh, one party has been fairly dominant. It's the Democrats. Um, And uh, in 2001, uh, I was working for an Asian American civil rights group. Um, and we were organizing communities to participate in the redistricting process simply by talking about where their communities were. And we organized people to participate in about a half dozen hearings and drew maps, but we realized um, over time that those hearings were really a dog and pony show, and ultimately the legislators were going to go behind closed doors and draw the lines that they really wanted to, which is exactly what happened in 2001. And so many Asian American communities, but also uh, many communities, were uh, sliced and diced and essentially pawns in a large chess game played by electeds, uh, sometimes to protect themselves, sometimes to protect their party. In California, there was a sweetheart deal between Democrats and Republicans to essentially protect everybody, give, give everybody a little bit of their own, carve in their favorite donors and uh, carve out their challengers. Uh, and in Illinois, you all have had that experience um, in quite a bit of um, history, including a time when Barack Obama, a young senator, was drawn out of his district because he dared to challenge uh, somebody for um, a seat. Um, And it just so happens that um, right now, coming to Illinois, you've got two California citizen commissioners who are coming to talk to folks in Springfield and in Chicago And they are coming to present a totally different way of doing things. Um, After 2008, California voters said no to the traditional way of drawing lines where incumbents drew their own lines and instead created a 14-person commission. And for the first time, regular people were drawn um, from a pool and some 30,000 people applied. Uh, And ultimately, 14 people were chosen. And and it it was an amazing participatory process where tens of thousands of people came out to talk about their communities and they finally felt heard. Where did you look for inspiration in creating your commission? Uh, did you look at how other countries do this? Did you Were there other states ahead of California? Sure. Well, interestingly, there are about a handful, a small handful of states, including Arizona uh, and Washington, that had moved towards some type of commission. But the way that they did it was that they had a five-person commission. And um, They generally had two Democrats, two Republicans. Oftentimes they were chosen by the leaders of their own state legislatures. And then there was a fifth person who was chosen who was nonpartisan. Um, And that fifth person was chosen 
by the first four who were appointed. Um, many other countries do it totally differently. So uh, Canada, Mexico, India, Britain, they all have um, an alternative body, draw the lines. Um, and the more that we looked at what was possible and we looked at kind of how other states were doing it and we learned from them, we had uh, commissioners come to California and talk about the pros and cons of the particular method that they set it up. We ultimately decided that we needed to have something that had an arm's length distance from the districts that were going to be drawn because we didn't want people who were going to have a personal self-interest in the outcome. Um, and we also wanted to be sure that people had real trust in the transparency and the ability to give input. And so that ultimately led to that 14-person Independent Citizens Commission that uh, had very little um, direct input from the legislature other than in a kind of jury voir dire style um, process at the very end where they could strike people who they thought might be ringers for the other side. We thought if the legislature had one thing that it was very good at doing, it was opposition research. And so they could research the remaining people in the pool, uh, decide if there were certain people that should re be removed, and hopefully our pool would then end up being not only extremely qualified, but um, impartial because anybody who had a bias had been removed by the other side. I'm talking with Kathy Fung. She is National Redistricting Director for Common Cause. She built a bipartisan coalition in California that replaced partisan district drawing with a nonpartisan commission, and we're talking about gerrymandering and how to get it out of the uh, U.S. system. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that Common Cause is a plaintiff in the Supreme Court case that was heard at the end of last month. You're challenging North Carolina's map, uh, congressional map. And um, why is going to the Supreme Court the uh, a, a good way to end gerrymandering? You seem seems like on the California level, you guys did right. it yourself. You put it together. Right. And the right. Supreme Court seems so reluctant <laughs> to take courses yes. on gerrymandering. They, they seem to... To, to kind of kick them back or do kick them under the rug or make excuses to do it. <laughs> you why, why, you why? are not incorrect that um, they have traditionally not wanted to, as they call it, wade into the political thicket. Uh, but the reality is that less than half of the states have some type of initiative process where citizens have the ability to change the process. And even in a, in a state like Illinois, where uh, you have a process for people to place something on the ballot, but the political powers that be are so intent on using every lever of power, whether that's the courts or the legislature, you know, um, or political pressure to keep a citizen initiative from ever making it to the ballot to change the redistricting process, that the only avenue for some states, for many states, uh, is to have a set of constitutional restrictions imposed by the Supreme Court. It's like having an all-out brawl <laughs> and ultimately having to go to mom and dad and say, you know, can you please lay down some rules because this is not going to get sorted out um, by ourselves. And the challenge is, you know, and, and you know this well in, in Illinois, um, there have been multiple attempts to bring something to the ballot to try to challenge the way that legislators draw their own lines. And uh, time and time again, uh, the legislature has employed every trick of the trade to remove those um, signatures, remove the ballot measures from ever appearing on the ballot. And so voters don't have a chance to actually vote on it. And if they don't, then um, really the only recourse is to hope that the Supreme Court will ultimately draw the lines 
uh, or, and or um, announce that there are some limits on what the state legislature can do. Now, they, in some states like Pennsylvania, they've not just gone to the Supreme Court, but they've gone to their state courts because there are some protections under um, state law. Uh, the challenge is just that in many states, judges um, are closely connected to political leaders uh, in the legislature, either because they're appointed by them or they are friendly with them. And so it becomes very difficult to pull apart that that nest of uh, relationships that allows them to feel favorable towards incumbents. One of the things that it seems like was happening in the Supreme Court arguments over the North Carolina and Maryland case were that they, uh, justices were saying, well, there is, we don't want to set standards. We don't want to, we don't know what the standard is. We don't, we can't mm-hmm. figure it out. There's no mm-hmm. way to do this uh, and, and give the guidelines. We don't want to be the guideline maker. Yeah. I think what's interesting is I think that there are certain justices that are reluctant to try to create standards. However, we do believe that uh, the four liberal justices, plus possibly based on the oral arguments that happened this Tuesday, March 26th, there may be one or two of the conservative justices that are not only willing to recognize that there is a problem with partisan gerrymandering, but there actually is a possible solution to it. And the justices spent a lot of time exploring what that might look like. The the facts of the case in North Carolina are particularly worth mentioning. Um, This is an instance where the state of North Carolina has been involved in uh, decades worth of litigation because the first set of lines that they drew, they drew intentionally to pack um, African Americans into two districts and Democrats into the third district and essentially bleach or dilute um, Democrats from, from the surrounding 10. And so in a state that generally is 50-50, Democrats and Republicans, um, they managed to squeak 10 districts for Republicans um, in the congressional delegation and only three for Democrats. That skew was something that originally was found to be unconstitutional as a racial gerrymander. And um, in being ordered to redraw the lines, the state legislature proudly and and in a um, rash of, I guess, arrogance, said, we're not doing it for racial reasons. The only reason why we're drawing these lines is for partisan gain. And so the question is, when, when the legislature is very clear and in admitting that this is what their motivation is, uh, is that enough for the Supreme Court to step in? And why is it that racial gerrymandering is, is, is illegal? I mean, I guess I understand why racial gerrymandering mm-hmm. is illegal, but partisan gerrymandering isn't illegal? Yeah. I mean, yeah. That's, that's kind of a, a – I don't get the – it seems like a non sequitur. It's an odd thing that I think is um, a product of, I think, the racism in our country, but also um, this sense that um, politics is politics and we we sort of allow people to – rip each other apart. Um, And the courts are supposed to remain a little bit aloof from that, right? And so they don't want to, they they may be called in to correct a problem if it's severe, but they generally tend to be reluctant to try to put a finger on the scale on behalf of one party or another. And they're afraid that if they open up the doors to uh, declaring that partisan gerrymandering is unconstitutional, that suddenly they're going to have to decide every single map that's drawn by every level of government. But the reality is that North Carolina's instance was so extreme where you had an admission by the legislature and you had a skew that was so far off from where voters generally are that uh, I think that a lot of the 
justices were actually persuaded that you could actually look at outlier cases and really focus the rule on that, that when you've got an extreme gerrymander and you've got an admission of guilt, uh, that that really ought to be unconstitutional. And and maybe there is some room for um, movement between um, Democrats and Republicans and as they're figuring out, you know, who to to who the spoils will go to. Uh, we, we've um, just got about a minute left, but I wanted line. to ask you if um, what's the best case scenario in the Supreme Court case that, um, sure. that they say you, you've got to set up a California like thing? <laughs> well, yes, that would be the best case scenario if Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, in her wisdom, would say that all states must draw things in an independent way and follow these uh, strict rules. And, and frankly, that those people who are going to be running for those offices are not allowed to run for those offices. My guess is that they'll stop far shy of that. And instead, what they'll do is they'll say, um, here's what we will not allow. You can't have an outlier case. You can't admit um, that you are drawing lines purely for partisan gain. You can't draw lines that essentially affect that, right? Where where uh, they're so skewed that they take away the power of voters to elect candidates of their choice. We'd- Kathy Fung is National Redistricting Director for Common Cause, and Common Cause is a plaintiff in the Supreme Court challenge to North Carolina's congressional map. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about gerrymandering. Thank you. Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to talk with Ahmed Sadri from Lake Forest College and Aaron Freeman, a science commentator about the relationship between science and Islam. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Char Dastin, Jenny Friedland, and Ashish Valentine for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.